Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Welcome again, folks. You're on the grill with Beef Central, the weekly podcast series where you'll hear from the movers and the shakers, the people of influence in Australia's red meat industry today. And I have to mention this recording is taking place just prior to her very first national convention as president of Angus Australia, Erica Halliday. Madam President, welcome. You're on the grill with Beef Central. <laughs> Terry, that is wonderful. Thank you for calling me Madam President. The boys call me Skipper. Here, but I like Madam President very much. (laughs) You're now writing a point for one of the leading beef cattle breeds in Australia. How do you see the place of Angus cattle in the Australian beef uh, industry landscape at present? It's very exciting. That's why we're here for the next couple of days uh, to talk about where Angus are going into the future. And one of the most exciting things that we find is actually the steadfast of the breed, which is the Angus cow. And it's the fact that she is the great all-rounder of the beef industry. And I guess that's what we find is so unique about her is actually the fact that she can balance all those carcass and maternal traits. And that's what we'll be looking at uh, going forward as to the future and where she sits in the future of the beef industry. We'll uh, look further into the Angus breed a little later, Erica. But first, uh, your background, is it fourth or fifth generation on the Ben Nevis property near Walker in northern New South Wales? Yeah, look, I'm actually fourth generation because my dad was in his um, nearly in his 50s uh, when he had me, so there was quite a generation gap there. But um, my family has been where I'm living at the moment since 1860, and I'm living in that same house. I don't know whether that's really wonderful or really sad, but <laughs> but um, you know we love it, and I'm very proud and honoured to be there still. Now, your family had Black Angus cattle even way back then when when you were first growing up around that property, you're yeah. very much a minority in the district, which was strongly short on at the moment. And you used to get teased on the school bus about your family's cattle. I used to cattle. get picked on at school for having Angus cattle and they used to call them the little black pigs. And, and that's what, <laughs> yeah, I used to get picked on all the time for having Angus cattle. But that's famous cattle country. There are a lot of shorthorns around there, I assume, and, uh, and very few Angus at the time. Yes, and I have to apologise before I say this um, to my fellow lovely shorthorn breeders, but my family um, had shorthorns and Angus back uh, at the start of the uh, 20th century. And uh, during the drought, the Angus climbed the hills and the shorthorns died on the river, and that is why um, my family and Ben Nevis Grazing Company has Angus cattle today. (laughs) Sorry, shorthorn breeders. (laughs) So you you grew up there, school at Negs, and then to University in Sydney to study ag science. What did ag, ag economics, actually. Oh, but yes, ag yes. economics? Well, yes, indeed. Um, that economics is so important. What did uni teach you that you didn't already know about um, breeding cattle? You know, I guess part of going to university is actually that learning to learn and that, that love of learning. And for me, I was desperate to find um, a way forward that you could have a future in the beef industry, that it was something that was both profitable and sustainable. And um, yeah, that's why I went to uni. I don't know that I came away from my first stint at university sort of going, well, the rural industry is really in a good place. But by the time um, I went to the University of Illinois and by the time I did a grazing for profit school and I came back to Australia, I was firmly of the belief that you could make a living and it could be sustainable and fun and happy yeah. in the beef industry, yeah. Learning to learn is an excellent response. You went on that well-trodden path, didn't you, to America, judging cattle in America 
and a stint at, yes, the, as I you did. mentioned, the University of Illinois. The, the, the tell us about the cattle judging in America. Oh, there's a wonderful. There was a wonderful man called Dr. Doug Parrott, and I've actually just come from a breakfast meeting where we spoke about how we're going to try and honour him going forward and that scholarship going forward. But yeah, look, the opportunities that I got and the judging team. Um, I just sort of joined a judging livestock judging team over there, but it was more than learning to judge. It was it was being with young people that felt wonderful about the beef industry. But for me, they they taught me public speaking, and so that ability to organise thoughts and ideas on the run is what we were talking about at our breakfast meeting this morning, how to give those same skills to Australian students today. And you worked on an American feedlot, much the same as it here, here in Australia? Much the same, except for, you know, when I complained about the cold, it was bitter. Like, it was minus 30 and I was on a horse. But, yes, I worked in a feedlot in Colorado. Oh, you're up. Down, down in Colorado, it does get a bit chilly there in winter, I know. Yeah, so. I think my hair was wet one morning. I went out and it actually snapped, froze and snapped off. Right? <laughs> well, I had look, a funny tuft in my hair for quite some time. I thought Walker was cold, but you've had another experience even worse than that. Yeah, now, I know that Walker is tropical. Now, back to Australia and you marry Stuart, who happens to be a veterinarian. Very handy to have on the property, I assume. And look, Terry, I, I promise you, I did not go out looking for a veterinarian, but the fact that he's a veterinarian and likes dogs, horses and cattle, I mean, <laughs> there was really no other man for me. <laughs> then you work on your family property, or will you rather than go to your family property, Ben Nevis, you take on mm. a challenge, you and Stuart move to, uh, into what's what, what would loosely be called tiger country. You start running yes. cattle, uh, to quote Yes Minister, that was a very brave decision. Yes. We went and leased the state forest and it was basically gorges, blackberries, pine trees and, yes, tiger snakes. But it was something that we felt we needed to do. We needed to earn the right. Like I, I just didn't want my husband to come home and start working for our, my family business, not because it, it wasn't a, a wonderful family business and wonderful family, but just the fact that, you know, we wanted to earn the right. We wanted to do something on our own. But, look, in hindsight, we could have chosen a lot easier things or a lot easier paths to take. But, you know, it, it was really difficult and hard. We used to lease the state forest. We used to adjust other people's cattle. And it used to take us about four days to muster, you know, 200 head of cattle in. Wow. Um, it was it was hard. It was hard, but it was a really good learning ground. And now we're very grateful for every opportunity that we've got and country that doesn't have blackberries and tiger snakes and gorges <laughs> in it. Yes. <laughs> a, a learning experience, a tough one. So time moves on. You take over Ben Nevis and decisions have to be made about how you're going to manage the land and the word becomes yes. front and centre for you and that word is sustainability. It is and again like everything, if we write a book we're going to call it the hard way. So Stewie and I were diligently trying to renovate country and doing it the industrial way or, or the the tried and true method of you know poisoning the country all the time and then putting in super improved pastures and putting lots of synthetic fertilisers on it. And during the drought, we had a paddock that was fallow and it ended up being supposedly fallow and holding moisture for two years. But in actual fact, all we had done in that situation was basically kill all the biology in the soil. And then when the drought came and the winds came, we lost most of our topsoil to the wind. And then in, ironically, when the rain came, we lost the rest of the topsoil to the rain. And that that was a major turning point for us where we thought we have to do something differently. And so since then, we've been trying to learn about what's under the soil and trying to nourish what we've got above the soil by working with below the soil. And it's just been an absolute breakthrough for us. And it's just been a, a heap of fun as well. And now our kids are both 
involved and studying in those areas and really looking at, at a future where we go forward where we can capture the carbon that's in the air at the moment and bury it deep in the soil and it have wonderful benefits on both sides of that account. So you learnt something from the drought rather than just whinge about it and wait for it to end. We did and like I said it had to hit us across the face like a wet fish but you know, you know eventually we got the point and we went you know we have to do something differently here and it's we've done a lot of trials since then at home um, doing conventional farming and then oh look regen is a bad word it's not a bad word I think it's a wonderful word but people there's a lot of misunderstanding in this whole space at the moment we're just trying to work it out for ourselves we've got some paddocks where we're doing conventional methods, other paddocks where we're doing sort of regen or a sustainable method. And look, we're just comparing them as we go. And no experts, I can tell you that, but we're learning an awful lot and we're having a lot of fun doing it. You've subscribed to the MLA goal of carbon neutral by 2030. How are you going yes. with this on uh, Ben Nevis? Yes, look, well, we've, uh, we've measured a baseline and we've been improving um, slowly since then. Yes, look, we have subscribe to the carbon neutral 2030 and I think you know it's a lofty goal but definitely one worth worth working towards and, and worth you know trying to achieve. It's a tough gig for beef producers in particular in the country. Uh, could or should producers yeah. be getting more incentives from government to achieve this goal? I, I would think unlike a lot of people there is a lot of confusion uh, in this space. It's something we all want to really do the right thing um, but it's not easy to know how to take those steps and what I would love from our governing bodies is um, is some help with first with education, step one, step two, step three. But the other thing that um, is becoming more and more apparent to me is that climate is really a public good, and I just I just think it's really a lot on the shoulders of the farmers of today to actually wear the cost of delivering that public good um, to the benefit of not just Australia but everyone in the world and. I think we need to really support our farmers in in what they're actually trying to achieve on their land. Everyone's own land, they're trying to improve it and trying to make it sustainable for the future. But we're making, I hope, in the process, the planet more sustainable yeah. for everybody. And I think that farmers need help, not only on a financial level, but also on a psychological level and a mental level. Because, you know, the hardest thing for me is when I hear people say, Oh, you know, you farmers are ruining the planet. And I've actually had one man say that to me, to my face. And, you know, I guess as a farmer, you always think you're doing something noble. You know, you're working the land, you're providing protein for people. But for someone to turn around and tell you that you're ruining the planet is just absolutely gut-wrenching. And because we want to be doing something noble, and that's why it was so exciting to come across this um, regenerative, sustainable type of farming for me, because, again, I feel like I can actually be part of the solution. Uh, to climate change as well, and um, I think it's really important for farmers to to feel like to be doing something noble and to be recognised for doing good. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, uh, Erica. It seems to me that regional and rural Australia is carrying the load of this uh, carbon-free world that we aspire to. Now, you're an MLA ambassador. What does that entail? What what, what does that mean? I'm just part of uh, spreading the message of, of trying to do the right thing and trying to what we've been um, talking about, about... Um, you know, there's so much misinformation there and there's so much education that needs to go on at a producer level and basically it's not just farmers, it's everyone needs to understand how carbon works in the economy and, yeah, and I'm just trying to spread that message and the, about, you know, trying to be carbon neutral and try to be part of the solution. Time for a break and a word from our sponsors. Back in a moment. 
For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard. Available from your local vet today. Welcome back. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Our guest today, President of Angus Australia, Erica Halliday. Now let's put the microscope on the Angus breed. Beef Central records uh, show 48% of Australian breeding females are Angus influenced. In fact, about 2.4 million head are purebred Angus. Now, as an yes. Angus uh, aficionado, that may not surprise you, but I would think these numbers, these percentages would surprise many in the beef industry. Yes, and look, we spoke about, you know, why that is, and that's because from a female side of things, there is no other cow that does it better than the Angus cow for her ability to tick both those maternal and carcass boxes. But having said that, you know, I really believe in diversity. I love good cattle of any breed, and I hope that in the future we're not all completely Angus. You know, we need the complementarity of breeds and hybrid vigour is still the only free lunch that you get in the beef industry. But, you know, that Angus female, she sits at the cornerstone of everything, as I said, because she does that maternal carcass thing just so well. She's not the best at anything, but um, across the board, she's right up the top in in every box that you want to tick for profitability. Yeah, it's not one single characteristic, is it? It's uh, many across the board where they're at or near the top. And those words you mentioned, hybrid vigour, so important with our Angus cattle. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the other thing I want to mention, which we're sort of grappling with as as a breed at the moment and really looking at with a microscope is we've got some wonderful tools to measure our cattle um, at the moment with, you know, breed plan and genomics and, and all the research that we're working on. But in terms of, in terms of our um, breed plan, for example, it's a linear system. So, and we've always worked really hard to get genetic gain, but I think we need to stop uh, as a breed and as an industry and look back and say, well, you know, within that, is more always better? Yes. Um, is more growth always better? Is, is more IMF or more EMA always better? Because when you're behind the eight ball, it's always easy to just go forward and go as hard as you can at it. But now that we've achieved so much genetic gain, I think we need to step back and say, look, where is the sweet spot in all of this? You know, how much is enough growth? Um, how much is enough eye muscle area? And to actually fine-tune those quality aspects yes. of the animal as well. And I think that's one of the challenges that we face today because – as humans, we always, if it's linear, we always want to be at the top, don't we? Yes, indeed. And I'm struggling to find any drawbacks with Angus. They produce excellent meat. They're a very good temperament, mostly. The only negative question I've heard, and that's rarely, is that uh, Angus perhaps are getting too big, which you've mentioned about taking note of what is uh, getting bigger in the cattle. Yeah, look, you know, what, I, what really 
bugs me is when everyone goes, oh, you know, small cows are best or big cows are best or medium cows are best. So I think the challenge for us is to individually find what type of animal suits our country and the market. And it's not going to be the same for everyone. And I think that in both small, medium and large, there are animals that are more efficient than others. And I think it's our job. I think it's really good science to try and find those animals within within all of those rather than just, you know, generalise and say, well, small cows are more efficient. I think that that's really um, being a little bit lazy about it. Now, Angus and Wagyu had this uh, special relationship which has built up over the last 20 years or so. The F1 cross, of course, is a premium beast and, and the beef hierarchy. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Yeah, look, you know that um, Stewie and I, when we had a little foray into the state forest, we then moved into leasing country around Walker and, and our first business uh, venture together in cattle, apart from all the mixed masters type of cattle we had in the uh, state forest, was actually Angus cows with waggy bulls. We were ahead of our time, Terry, because as everything, we did it before it was quite um, popular or probably very profitable. So that was back back in the 90s. And... It's a wonderful cross and it has a specific market that it supplies, which is one of the biggest growing markets in the world, particularly in China, and that's that more heavily marbled sort of product, um, B5 Plus. Yeah, and it really has a, a very sweet market spot there that it's enjoying great success lately. Now, your convention is about to take place as we speak almost. You're about to step into the chair for your first ever convention. What's, yes. the, what's the headline moment, do you think, for the, this year? Um, I think... You know, our conference this year is, is called Beyond Beyond the Beef. You know, we'll, we will be looking at a number of research that's going on, but I think it will be for people identifying that where their sweet spot is and what's profitable for them and it's not the same for everyone. And so for us as a society, it's about providing the very best tools and education that we, that we have to be able to help people individually meet their own sweet spot. It's not for us to tell them what's right for them, it's about us providing those tools and that very best education, and that's what this conference is all about. Uh, Beef Central has Eric Barker at the Angus Conference at Tamworth at present. He'll have uh, articles on the Beef Central website over coming days from the convention. Now, challenges, you mentioned uh, a lot of points about the Angus breed in particular, but the warning about this big drought that's ahead, I suppose you're taking note of that as well? Oh, look... And I know I'm meant to be proactive, but when I heard that um, forecast the other day about a super El Nino, I'm like, really, people? Super El Nino? Like, you know, the last one that we had was 2016, and we know what happened there. And, you know, the odds of that happening again so soon are, are slim. But I think we still need to, to look at all these indicators and, uh, look, cross the bridge when it comes. But I know there's things there that people can be doing now, and they have been doing over the last couple of years to prepare for drought. It's not a one-off. It's something that we should, um, we know is going to happen every couple of years and we just need to have it as part of our strategic planning. But I'd be lying if I said that didn't strike the very fear of God into me, that um, Super El Nino forecast. But, you know, we'll cross, we'll cross that bridge as we come to it. Well, preparation is the key, isn't it, for, for any producer of any type on the land, any, any a farmer Pre- or grazier? Yeah, preparation is absolutely the key, but also planning for... Yep for droughts and, and El Ninos as, as a part of the cycle. So not just as a one-off event that you have to endure, but just, oh, yeah, here it comes. We've got plants in place and, you know, we've got points along the along the pathway. If it gets to this, we do this. If it gets to this point, we do this. And that way you can sort of take a little bit of the emotion out of the decision-making as, as it comes along. But I know that people, 
will have had fodder set away, they'll have had their water supplies um, set up, or if, if they haven't, that they will be doing that before they get to this point, and also having their stocking rate matching their carrying capacity, you know, on a rolling 12-month average, and, you know, so it gives them time to plan and time to make those decisions. No. But the most important thing, and I've got a – he was my under-30s um, mentor, Sam Martin, but I, I've actually realised I'm getting older because he's now in his mid-30s, and he rang me the other day as soon as that forecast came. He, he said, oh, I just needed to talk about it, and I said, oh, I'm glad you did because we needed to talk about it too, and just I, I think going forward that people really need to be talking to their friends and their neighbours and just as a matter of course so that we don't end up as farmers what happened during the last drought because I don't know if you know I'm on the board of rural aid and we deal a lot with yes. mental health. And one of the things that that does scare me about droughts is that people tend to get more busy on their farms and get more isolated. And I think that picking up the phone and just having a chat, even if it's talking about, you know, the threat of the El Nino coming up, yes. you know, I think it's really important just to talk and you feel much better when you get off the phone, I can tell you that. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Before we finish off, Erica, it would be remiss of me not to mention your commitment to cattle judging. You've judged at just about every big show in Australia, certainly all the Royals and Beef and Rocky, of course, and you've judged yeah. overseas. Tell us why you got so involved. Well, again, look, it goes back to those life-changing moments. And for me, one of those life-changing moments, and I've just been – I had breakfast with Jason Strong um, from the MLA – but for both of us, that life-changing moment was the scholarship we won, we won through Angus Australia to the University of Illinois under a fellow called Doug Parrott. And he taught me then beef cat, not only beef cattle judging, but how to publicly speak in relation to beef cattle judging. And I think part of that and part of the reason why I have enjoyed such a wonderful show career is the fact that when I judge, I... I make sure that I acknowledge all the effort that's gone in and I make sure I acknowledge all the good points of all those animals rather than than the negative. And I think that that's a really good mantra for life is to, to focus on the positive and how you can move forward as opposed to focusing on the negative. But I've thoroughly enjoyed my judging career. I've thoroughly enjoyed the people that I've met and I love good cattle of any breed and I just I find beautiful animals just, you know, make my heart sing. So I do love judging, yes, it's a bit of fun. A lot of high, high flyers in the beef industry have gone through that cattle judging experience in uh, Northern America. Uh, you mentioned Jason, Jason Strong, of course, and the inimitable Gary Edwards. Is it true you beat Gary Edwards in a judging competition once? <laughs> do you want to go Maybe public once. with that? Maybe once, but let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I reminded of him. It was it recently. I think it was only the one time, but that's the one I remember. So that's yeah, all. Of it's really important. Really isn't it? I'll remind him when I next <laughs> see him. <laughs> Erica Halliday, President of Angus Australia. A wonderful pleasure to have you on the grill. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a hoot. Thank you very much, Terry. It's been lovely. Thank you for joining me today. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed on the Weekly Grill, email theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is the Weekly Girl brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis.